Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's the 28th of February, 2013, and Roger Shank is our guest again. Welcome, Roger. Well, happy to be here. Really delighted that you would take the time. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Thanks to Mighty Bell, Menko, and Blackboard Collaborate for their support. Coming up, we have some really fun events, including the School Leadership Summit. These are free virtual conferences, worldwide events. The School Leadership Summit, we've just announced the keynotes, Yong Zhao, Bill Brennan, and Michael Fullen. Uh, it's March 28th, schoolleadershipsummit.com. We're trying to create a peer-to-peer -peer learning experience for school leaders, uh, like we've done in the other conferences. Hope you'll join us or tell your school leader friends. Coming up at the ISTE conference are regular unplugged events. These are the informal events that, we, that ISTE allows us to do, including the all-day unconference the day before, which we're calling Hack Education this year. Audrey Waters will be co-chair of that event. It should be a lot of fun. That's all at ISTEunplugged.com. And again, that's all free. Then announced for this year, uh, of course, our Future of Libraries conference and the Global Education Conference, the two sort of large Wonderful hundreds of sessions, 24 hours a day, several days. Uh, we're announcing a STEM conference with a Hewlett Packard support, a virtual homeschooling conference in May, and a gaming and education conference probably in August, and then looks like a museum, Future of Museums conference, which is we still don't have a date for. Anyway, lots of fun coming up, uh, all free, all highly participative. Coming up on the interview series on Monday, uh, Richie Norton comes on to talk about his new book, The Power of Starting Something Stupid. You're going to see the tie to education if you listen to this show because it's really fun. I really like Richie and uh, I really like his message, which is that typically new things are seen as stupid, which is maybe not a bad way of characterizing what Roger and I are going to talk about tonight. Richard Millington then will talk about social community management. Ben Rhymes will talk about virtual book clubs. Uh, Chris Mercoliano is going to talk about childhood, his book In Defense of Childhood. Paul Thomas on poverty and the corporate takeover of America. And there are lots more there. You can see that full list. Uh, new here is Don Winkle getting moved. His student entrepreneurship and, and truly flipping learning is moved to, to June 4th. Um, Peter Gray on free to learn and Elliot Washer on leaving to learn, both new on this list. Anyway, lots of fun. Hope you'll join us. Futureofeducation.com, they're all listed there. Uh, Tuesday, we talked to Gavin Dykes. That was really a fun conversation. Uh, before that, Maurice Gibbons on self-directed learning. Alan November on uh, who owns the learning. Nice juxtaposition of those two interviews. Uh, uh, Maurice being fully self-driven. Uh, Alan a little less so. Laura Grace Weldon on free range learning. Carol Black on Occupy Your Brain. Anyway, over 300 interviews up there in full Blackboard Collaborate form and an MP3 version. Yeah, it's a bad PowerPoint slide. Yes, Tom, it is. Okay, if you um, are going to, if you have any trouble following the chat here, you can actually pull it out and make it larger. To the top right of that chat box is a drop-down menu. Click on Detach Panel or just double-click and drag it and bring it out and make it a little bit easier to see. Please don't read all those names. I promise not to. So this is your chance, those of you in the live audience, to let us know where you're listening from. Look for the star to the left of the map, double click on it, and then click on the map. Put a shout out in the chat. 
like I said, I'm in Hawaii, which is a fun time zone to be in. Everything's earlier, and then you get a real break toward the end of the day. Headed next week to New Zealand, where I'll be doing uh, an event called Hack Your Learning, and then to Australia for a couple of events. Australia. Very fun. Wherever you're listening from, thanks for participating. If you're listening to the recording, we sure appreciate your taking the time to do so. There's a Mighty Bell room for this session. I'm going to put the link in the chat. Mighty Bell is the new project by Gina Bianchini, who co-founded Ning. I really like it. The full disclosure is that I do consulting work for Gina. And I think you're going to like this space. It is free. Everything Gina does is free for teachers. And it is a place to continue the conversation after the show if you would like to. So Roger, um, you write on here, there's a, there's, a, there's a saying on your website where you say, the system is so broken, it's hard to know where to start. Luckily for this conversation, you actually seem to know, right? Uh, and the, I found this line at the end of Teaching Minds. It was, education has always been the same, learning from experience with help from wise mentors. School has screwed that all up, and it's time to go back to basics. Is that a fair synopsis of your message? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, my sense of the world is that the history of mankind consisted of some probably pretty good parents who taught kids and, or communities that taught kids as they needed to do things, how to do them. So you can imagine kids going you know, through the apprenticeship on how to fish or hunt or garden or whatever it is that people have done. And then what happened historically, as far as I can tell, was religions got invented. And religions all come with schools, curiously. It doesn't really matter what the religion is. Um, and religions had the idea that there was truth and we needed to sit down front of kids and tell them what it was and have them memorize it, which is okay if you're doing a religion. But the school idea then got everywhere and started to be run by governments who had exactly the same philosophy, which is to say, this truth and we need to tell it to you. And that's not what learning ever has been for any animal. Obviously, you wouldn't lecture to a cat <laughs> or really for any people. And suddenly we think, you know, that education is I'll talk and you listen. Nonsense. Doesn't work like that. Never did. You make a real distinction in the book between doing and knowing. Why is that so important? Well, because the the education system is is dependent on that distinction in in, in the sense that it gets it wrong at exactly that point. Um, I mean, I, I I'm usually as most people are confronted with their own recent experience. So I've just come back from Mexico City and then Saudi Arabia, which is a weird trip. And in Mexico City, I was visiting uh, a school, which I don't usually do, and it was a school for poor street kids who were, um, they were just desperately trying to get them to go to school some of the time when they weren't selling chiclets on the street. And so I thought, gee, this is very good. It's funded by the phone company. And I thought it was great. In principle, but what, ha what happened? The kids got out there as soon as I arrived and sang me a song and marched in unison, and the song was about the glories of Benito Juarez. Now, I don't know, you know, as an American, I was imagining, okay, so now imagine we're making the kids sing a song about George Washington. 
What does this have to do with anything important, especially these are kids who need to learn how to earn a living. They need to learn how to function on the streets. They need to learn how to do a million things I can think of, none of which involve Benito Juarez. And, and I made the offhand remark while I was talking to him, and I'm sure everyone's being made to read John Quixote, which is always true in every Spanish-speaking country. And I said, somehow my country, we survived without ever having read Don Quixote. And what are we doing? What's this about? We have a set of religious objects that we must impart, and they're all knowing. It's all stuff you're supposed to know. If you don't know who George Washington was and you're an American, there's something wrong with you. Except that what we teach is nonsense. We don't teach anything very important about George Washington any more than they teach about Benito Juarez. It's nonsense. The only thing that really matters is learning how to do stuff, whatever that stuff might be. And other stuff doesn't matter. So now the audience is getting a little bit of an understanding of why your blog title is Education Outrage. <laughs> right. And you do talk about... In the essay, uh, everything you think you know about education is wrong. You talk about the fact that everybody gets this wrong, right? Every country. What is it Every country. just because this is a, a ritual or a, could we even call it a meme and that it has certain reasons that it survives that have nothing to do with learning? Well, it has to do with governments. John Stuart Mill said this some hundreds of years ago. He said that if the government would, would, would insist on making sure everybody had a good education, they wouldn't have to be in business of providing it. And I think that's the issue, exactly, which is that we, like, we want everybody to have a good education. But how does the government get in charge of that? And as soon as the government's in charge of that, and it's obvious if you pick the glaring examples, in Stalinist Russia, when the government's in charge, gee, somehow everyone believes in glories of communism. In Nazi Germany, everyone believes how wonderful the Nazis are. Every government does that. It can be less extreme in other kinds of more democratic countries, but we have a truth that the government would like to impart. And the funny thing about that truth is it seems to always include mathematics. To me, this is fascinating. How did it become the case that everybody needs to learn the quadratic equation? What for? Or everybody needs to learn to balance a chemical equation. Really? I don't know any of that stuff. I never need to know any of that stuff. And I was a math major and a computer science professor. We are making it up as we go along and insisting that everybody learn it. The problem is actually, as it turns out, not the government or the government is the enforcer. The problem in this country particularly is the university system. The university system has set the rules. If you want to get into Harvard, you'll have to have two years of this and three years of that and four years of this. And what do we set the rules about? Subjects. And if, as a long-time professor at these very schools I'm criticizing, what I can tell you is the problem with them is they're divided by academic departments and don't talk to each other. And each subject has to be, has lots of rules about what you have to teach and what's important about it. And we transmitted this down to the high schools to say, you must behave if you want to send your kids to Harvard. You must behave exactly the way we're going to tell you. And then we have a culture where everyone, if you don't go to college, is considered to be a moron. So going to college becomes the, the reason for high school, in essence. And high school becomes totally directed by what the colleges think are important. And most of what they think is important is just academic stuff. And I don't think the word academic to be a seriously important word. It's just the kind of knowledge that intellectuals have, which is nice for the 0.05% of the population that's actually intellectual and tends to screw up with everybody else. I love the story about your dad because you say he's both your best teacher and your worst teacher. And he was your worst teacher when he was trying to teach. 
Why was it, and in what part of your life was he your best teacher? Oh, I can remember the very best story of all. Okay, I'm 18 years old, and I and I'm living in in in, in um, well, I'm, yeah, I'm living in. I'm about to buy a car, my first car, and my father takes me to the dealership, and he walks into the dealership, and he says to the guy, "Okay, we'll give you X amount of dollars." And the guy says, let me take an X amount of dollars. And I'm saying to my father, hey, I want this car. X is fair price. And my father's saying, no, no, it's no way. It's not happening. And he, he walks out in a huff. And I said, how could you give this to me? I want this car. And he says, shut up. <laughs> 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 and, and then he, he goes back and he, and he gets it for a much lower price. And, and the guy says, well, you got me beat up so bad, you need to bring me a bottle of champagne for closing. All right, so we come back and we get the car the next day. And I said, where's your bottle of champagne? My father says, hell with him. <laughs> and he taught me how to negotiate. Now, that's actually an important skill. And I learned it by watching him. He was very good at it. And then he would give me long speeches about mathematics and physics, and I didn't understand why he was telling me that, because I wasn't interested. You, uh, why is it, this is a setup question, why is it that students learning to drive and date are more important than algebra? Well, for one thing, because that's something they care about. My issue with children is to say to a child, what do you want to do? Okay, and whatever it is they want to do, the job of a parent is to spot it. As it happens this very afternoon, I had a long conversation with my daughter, who is by no means a child. Okay, and she was talking about her, you know, her life and how much she's, she's written a book and she's, and, and she's written a lot of New York Times articles and she makes her living from computer stuff. And she says, I just really want to write. And I said, and and then she gave me a long explanation as to why, why she wanted to write, what the you know, pseudo-intellectual reasons behind it were. And I said, you want to write because when you were five, you wanted to write. You've always wanted to write. You like writing. And I said, I don't know if you can make a living, but I know you like it, so why don't you try to pursue what one likes? And that's the issue. We're always not listening to what the kid wants to do and wants to like, and we should just let them do it. Encourage them and we see you like X. Let's get you near somebody who knows how to do X and will help you be better at X. Every kid doesn't have to be the same. If the goal is ultimately an individual who is self-directing and has an awareness of their own decision-making, and we've used the word agency here in the interview series to describe that, um, how does that change how you think about what you try and do in education? Well, first of all, let me tell you that that's not my goal, although I don't disagree with it. My goal is that kids should be happy. You know, I've gotten into long conversations with people about education lately, and I've learned that if you are talking education and you don't have your own children, you tend to not know what you're talking about. But if you've raised your own children, you've experienced the fact that your children are pretty stressed going to school, one way or another, for whatever reason. Someone was bullying them, someone was prettier than them, someone had better clothes than them, someone, usually the other kids were the problem. They were stressed out by the test. They were stressed out by whatever situations. And I'm wondering, why are we stressing children out all the time? What for? What's the point? I don't get that model of education, that, that we put children through a stressful experience. My goal is not that they should make better decisions. I'd rather like that, of course. That's wonderful. My goal is that kids should be eager to go to school every day, be really happy about it. And in fact, I have a story from just this minute because my daughter happens to be in Costa Rica for the month, and her son, who is in the second grade, she had him Skype with the kids back in New York that he used to go to school with, and they were, and it was on Friday they were in school, and it was Friday afternoon, and he wasn't. And they said, "Well, why, why aren't you in school?" They asked him, "Why aren't you in school?" And he says, "Well, 
In Costa Rica, you don't have to go to school on Friday afternoon. And every kid started breaking out and cheering and screaming about how come they had that. They couldn't do that. So you're talking about kids who universally wish they weren't there. And what I'm asking is, why do we have to create a childhood that's made up of that level of stress? We can figure out how to do it better. And in fact, in the world of now, I mean, I'm a computer guy, so in the world of online education, you now have the opportunity you didn't have before to fix this problem, which is to create a whole range of mentored experiences. I'm not saying a kid staring at a computer all that long. What I'm saying is a kid doing things with other kids, guided by the computer, guided by an actual person, maybe in the room, maybe not in the room, that's what he wants to do. If he wants to build an airplane, maybe the guy's in Seattle is helping him. But one way or another, he gets to choose what he wants to do, what she wants to do, and somebody is there from experts somewhere to help them and to guide them and to make sure they're doing it and they're doing well and then they're working harder and harder things. That is what I would like to see happen, not school. It's been really interesting to interview people from organizations that have been doing online learning for decades. Uh, I had um, someone from Phoenix University on and from Penn Foster. And w w no matter what you think of those particular institutions, those who have been doing online learning for a long time have really gravitated toward much smaller, much more relationship-based online learning. But right now, sort of the big story right. is That's the right models. So, so why are MOOCs not the answer? Unfortunately, I don't even know what the question is that MOOCs would be answering. Uh, <laughs> you know, a colleague of mine, a well-known institution that will, that will remain nameless, said to me when they were first coming out, he said, you should be very excited about this. We're going to do online education at our school. We're going to have 10, 20, 20, 50, 100,000 students. I tell you, you're going to have 20, 50, 100,000 teachers. <laughs> if you're not going to do that, you didn't improve anything. So we have the very stupidest part of university education, lecture halls. They're there, and now you're talking to a university insider who was part of the, I mean, I've always said you met, I met the enemy and he is me. You know, I, I was part of the best universities and how they were in, and I know what they were doing. And what they're trying to do is pack as many kids as possible into a lecture, lecture hall because it makes economic sense to do that. If you have one teacher and a thousand students, you have made money. And the universities don't put it that way, but that's what they're thinking. And so let's take this really dumb motto where any picture you ever see of electrical, the kids are half asleep or looking at their iPads or you know, on the phone or whatever they're doing, wishing they weren't there. And let's take that really dumb idea and broadcast it to 500,000 people. Yay, what an improvement. We sure have changed something important. But the real problem I have with MOOCs, of course, is the underlying what's going on in the university. Because again, I'm part, I mean, not lately because I've quit the system, but I was part of that system for a long time. I know what the university are trying to do. So when Stanford launched MOOCs, a university which I was once affiliated with, um, I know what they're doing. They're trying to make sure that Stanford doesn't have to change in any way from its model. And so they don't want to get caught up in, gee, you're not democratic, or gee, you're not online. So what they want to say instead is, see, we're doing all this cool stuff. But by the way, Stanford's exactly the way it always was, which is a research institution which is meant for the professors to be able to get lots of research grants, do lots of good research, and take in good graduate students. And by the way, we have to put up with undergraduates. And trust me, that's exactly how they feel. So Steve makes a comment in the chat. He wants to make sure that it's understood we're talking about the MOOCs that are the incarnation that came out of Stanford and the like versus the Canadian guys, constructivist, uh, highly uh, participatory MOOCs that, that sort of get ignored here. 
Well, I'm certainly talking about the Stanford thing, and and now the rush to for every school to join into that. Um, anything that's, that that is participatory in the sense, not that a lot of students are writing to each other, in the sense that let's say there, there is one one teacher and ten or twenty um, kids, and they all get access to the to the teacher whenever they need it. See, I believe in mentoring, not lecturing. So what I'm saying is, I'm trying to do something here. Professor, could you help me? I'll give you an example. When I moved to my end of my career to Carnegie Mellon to build an online version of Carnegie Mellon, which they later rejected because they said, gee, we don't want to have tens of thousands of Carnegie Mellon graduates, which I find very funny now when you have into MOOCs, but this was 10, 12 years ago. And so I brought in the, the we were building an e-business uh, master's degree online, all learn by doing. And I brought in the business plan professor, and I said, well, so what do you teach? He says, well, I teach writing business plans. And I said, why would I need you? I can buy a book. He says, well, that's what I do. I give lectures on business plans. I said, well, not when you're working for me. What you're going to do when you're working in my context is you're going to read business plans. We're going to set up a situation, and kids will write a business plan, and you'll read it, and you won't give it A, B, C, or D. You'll help them make a better one, because that's actually your job, not giving me lectures about business plans. It's not that radical concept if you think about it, but when you go into the university and you say that, they look at you like you're a man. So the sort of money quote from your blog post is the one from Veronica Campbell, the Dean of Graduate Studies at Trinity College Dublin, who says, her school has no open online courses nor plans to offer them, but quote, there is a fear of being left behind, so we are considering yes. what to do. Yes, that's what's going on, and there's now a fear culture. It'll all disappear. MOOCs will disappear. What's going, what's going to work, I mean, now I'm saying something very egocentric. This is what I'm working on, and I'm, I'm totally convinced it's going to work. What we're building is online advanced level, kind of at the master's, postgraduate courses in, in, um, in, that are short. They don't last very long. As an example, we have a three-week course in search engine optimization. If you would like to learn how to optimize your website for search, we'll teach you how. It's learn by doing. You work with other people trying in a fictional situation. You will. We have a captive search engine, so you can play with it, and you can make website the website better and more recognizable. You don't need a degree in this. You just, if you learn how to do it, become more useful in the world that you're living in. And we have now built, you know, 30 of those. Let's say of different varieties, mostly in computer science, because it's where I know how to start. But we built them in business as well. As well, we're moving on to other areas, healthcare. And all I'm trying to say is that there's stuff to learn out there. And one can put up, build it in terms of online mentored experiences, all learned by doing. The computer is a doing device. It should not be there to replicate a system that was that's 100 years old. I mean, lecture or lecturing is 500 years old, thousands of years old. It's ridiculous. That's what we're doing with our technology, putting lectures online? It's going to be nothing. So in a system of doing rather than knowing, is there no need for formal assessment is the is your capability of doing work your capability of doing work how, how do you yes, respond absolutely. to things well, like badging look i'm i think the only reasonable educational institution in the entire world is the department of motor vehicles the department of motor vehicles has two tests not one one stupid is every other test which is memorize a lot of junk and spit it back on a multiple choice test and the other one is gee let's see if you can drive and we'll sit with you and see if you can. I like that test. It's the only test they care about. Okay? So if you're a doctor, let's see if you're going yeah, to Yeah, I just recently got my... If you're a teacher, let's watch you teach. I stepped on your toes there. Keep going. 
No, no, I just went blank. I didn't hear you. <laughs> okay, so I'll tell my story. Okay, I recently got, got my driver's license in Utah, and uh, uh, the test portion is an open book test. And it was actually a really good experience because I got to know you know, sort of where the information was in the book. I got to know the general understanding. I didn't want to go in and spend four hours taking the test. I wanted to be able to, you know, they probably want to make sure I knew the laws. And so I sat down and in 30 or 40 minutes had figured out where everything was in the book and then went in and took the test. And it felt like I actually learned something. Well, maybe, but we can go back a year later and see if you remembered any of it. I mean, when I moved from from, uh, from Yale to Northwestern, uh, I at that time, at Yale, I had a, a, a motorcycle. And so when I went to get a driver's license in Chicago, uh, they said, well, would you like the motorcycle license? I didn't have a motorcycle, but I figured I may as well try to do that. I've been driving a motorcycle for 20 years. I couldn't pass the motorcycle written test. It had a million rules. But I, but I, how many feet do you have to learn to stop the engine when you're going to such a mouth? Who cares? You can memorize that stuff for a while, but it's not the knowledge that matters. If I ask you how much pressure do you have to put on the brake to stop a car going 60 miles an hour, the answer is in your foot and your hand and your eye. I can have you memorize a number and they can put it back in the test, but that's not what the real answer is. I'm often asked, I mean, I was in addition to being an academic, I was also kind of a jock, okay? And uh, so I was a, a quarterback. And people, somebody once asked me, he said, well, do you spin the football when you throw it? And I said, no, give me a football and I'll see if I do. I don't learn, you don't learn how to do those things by memorizing words about them or memorizing facts about them. You have to learn how to do it by practicing doing it. And that's true of any kind of doing, including what I'm doing right this second with you and what you're doing with me, talking, which is something we do for, for a living. <laughs> we get better at it by practicing it. I'm not realizing the 17 rules of talking. That's a very good point. So it's not just the sacred cow of math that you kind of skewer. It's also history, literature, and even science. What do we do wrong Yes, there? every single subject. Every single subject is wrong. Let's say chemistry, okay? Uh, chemistry is my favorite whipping boy. So I was building Columbia University Online before that was fashionable, maybe 15 years ago. And I went to interview the professors at Columbia about building the first-year college chemistry course. And I just asked a couple of questions. And I said, well, okay, so I'm just guessing here, but what percentage of your, of your chemistry majors at Columbia are pre-meds? To which the answer was, all. <laughs> and I said, okay. And what in first-year college chemistry do you teach that is relevant to the future life of a doctor? And they said, nothing. <laughs> I said, why would that be? They said, because there are these rules about the med boards and the requirements for getting into medical school, and we can't teach what we think we should teach. I said, well, is there chemistry a doctor should know? They said, of course. They should need to understand how these drugs work and what they prescribe and how, how it affects the body, you know, their various interactions. I said, well, can we, I'll build a course to teach that. He said, well, we won't be able to use it because we have all these rules that we have to follow. And so instead, they're teaching, you know, SP3 binding and balancing of chemical equations, all which doesn't matter. And so every time you say to somebody, they must take chemistry, it's science, they're not teaching anything that matters in chemistry. I can tell you all kinds of chemistry that matters, for example, nutrition or, or drugs that we take or trying to understand how, to, how our bodies operate, which is exactly not what they teach in chemistry. <laughs> and so each time you hit any one of these subjects, you have to realize that what's being going on with them has to do with a kind of religious uh, fervor. That's why I was talking about religion before. Don Quixote must be taught because it's our Spanish heritage. 
Well, it isn't, actually. In Mexico, it's the heritage of conquering people from a different period of time. <laughs> and I don't know what they're even talking about. And in Spain, where I spend a lot of time, it's not, it may or may not be their heritage, but it just doesn't matter. It doesn't make them more employable. Right now in Spain, everybody's mass unemployment. People are really worried about that. And they're studying more literature. Sounds crazy to me. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. So uh, you also talk about the fact that the, the small doing that does take place in schools is, is kind of uh, non-valuable doing, right? Memorizing, reading, learning to take tests, listening, and repeating. Yes. Well, it turns out, of course, the only doing we're actually teaching is testing. We're very good at teaching that. And some people pay attention and learn, and, and learn to take tests. And we're also very good at teaching people to sit quietly and listen. As I'm fond of saying to when I lecture, which is only something I do if I'm well paid because I think it's such a silly activity. But what, I, what I'm fond of saying is, you know what you all learned? You learned how to all be good little boys and girls and sit quietly for an hour. Which, as it turns out, you might guess I can't do. <laughs> I initially didn't react very well to this when I went to college. Really? You're supposed to sit quietly for an hour? I'm not going to do it. So we, we reward people for sitting quietly and behaving. And so they are learning to do that. And the kids who succeed in school, you know, I would, if they had ADHD, I'm sure I would have been stamped with it. Now what happens if somebody is, if somebody is, is actively thinking and got their own ideas and so on, they, they try to drug them out of it, when what we should be doing, of course, is taking every kid and looking for where their excitement level is. In fact, I have a standard excitement level story I like to tell, okay, which is that you know, my son, when he was, uh, when we lived in New Haven, and he used to often, we often go to New York to visit my parents in New York, and he just loved the subway. And when, I, when he was 10 years old, I moved to Paris. And I walked him over to the subway, Metro, Paris Metro, and I said, here is the map. Here is how you buy a ticket. Goodbye. And he literally never got off the subway. He went on every single stop. He drew maps. He was so excited. He, he went to the subway. He finished with the subway. He wanted to bus it. This is all he cared about. And now, it's some years, and I, I used to take him on trips with me. I, I took him to Tokyo once, and he never actually literally got above ground. And so when he went to college, he went to Columbia. And when he went to Columbia, he called me up one day and said, I'm thinking of being a history major. So, you know, the first weeks of school. And I said, well, you're not going to be a history major on my money because I won't pay for it. He said, well, what should I major in? I said, subways. He said, well, how do you major in subways? I said, I don't know. Figure it out. That's what you like. It's not do it for me. That's what you love. So he calls me back. He says, I found a graduate course in transportation, but they won't let me in. I said, they'll let you in. Just go over for us and say you want to be in it. Make a long story short. My son has a PhD in transportation, and he's now the CEO of a transportation policy think tank in Washington. Okay, the kid loves what he's doing. That kid, he loves what he's doing. And all I did was a little tiny thing. I let him be himself. That's it. So we're getting some fun pushback in the chat. I wish you could see it, but in the absence of that, I'm going to read you at least one quote here. So uh, Kathy says, as a teacher, I feel like you're talking about me and know nothing about my classroom and what I do. It doesn't matter what you do in your classroom. The fact is that you're in a classroom is the problem. I understand that once that there are good teachers. I understand that there are people who, are, when they're in front of a classroom, manage to make it work. What I'm saying to you is there shouldn't be classrooms. You shouldn't have 30 kids all trying to do whatever it is you're trying to get them to do. Even if you give them individual attention, you're still trying to get them, especially in this era, to pass some stupid test. And it, it isn't, the teacher is no way at fault here. The teacher, in my view, I have great respect for teachers because I can't believe they put up with this awful situation that they're in. 
what I'm not, not in any way criticizing teachers. I am criticizing the idea that there should be classrooms. Now, I realize, as you said earlier, about you know, that's a stupid idea. Yeah, I know. Everyone says it's a stupid idea. And uh, where I'm more well known in the Spanish-speaking world, this is the headlines around the Spanish-speaking world. Roger Shane thinks we eliminate the classroom. Right. Because it's an antiquated idea. And I told you it comes from religion. Get, get on to the next thing, which is how do we now get kids excited in a modern era that does not require a teacher in a classroom. It does require a teacher. It requires many teachers. So that when I sit down and try to design a train system, from, and my son tries to design a train system, he's six instead of just doing it on his own, there's somebody who knows how to do that and says, okay, you want to do that? Let's do that. And by the way, you, we might want you to read a little bit while you're doing that, so to read about trains, or there might be some math you have to do. I don't know. But it, 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 let's get you excited about what you're doing. No teacher can do that. They can do it in limited quantities. But in the end, they're part of a system, and that, that system is telling them what every kid has to know. We're back to the world we use before. What every kid has to know at the end of the day. Not what they need to know how to do. What they need to know at the end of the day. There's always those tests. There's always those requirements. And the bad guys, as I said, are the colleges, which are insisting on this. And the teacher is caught up in a system that the teacher can't control. And I'm sure there are some that try very hard and do as well as they possibly can do under the circumstances. I know that those, those teachers exist. I, I meet lots of them. That still is very hard. So we will go to Q&A in about 20 minutes. And so if you're, uh, there's so much chat going on, you know, uh, please keep your interest, uh, keep your thoughts, and we'll, we'll open the mic and the chat again to, to Q&A. I want to move on at this point to talking about what you do think we should learn. Um, and sort of fundamentally, it feels like you're saying we need to learn, we need to help students learn how to think well. Well, I've always said there are the three big things that every is all really there is that really matters. Human relations, you need to get along with other people. Communications, you need to learn how to write, how to speak. And reasoning, you need to be able to reason from evidence. This actually is one of my complaints about science, because science is where they should be teaching that, and they don't. They teach you watch this experiment. Speaking of experimentation, I have my twelve cognitive processes in the book, which I think are important. One of them is experimentation. What does that mean? Does that mean conducting a scientific experiment? No. Every child is conducting experiments all the time. When the two-year-old picks up something and sticks in his mouth as an experiment, does this taste good? Well, I like it. When the two-year-old takes something and throws it at another kid, gee, will that work? Is that a bad idea? And we are experimenting all the time throughout our entire lives. We have to learn how to do that well. We have to understand what's working, what's not working, uh, what, how to what new thing to try, what not to try. That idea of experimentation is critical to everybody, not to scientists. But yet. In school, it's something that weird scientists do. And by the way, I'll bore you to death by making you watch me do one of these experiments when we know it turns out. Another one I mentioned earlier, negotiation. Negotiation is critical. Every aspect of your life involves negotiation. I mean, typically we just simply accept the prices we get in this country. But you're still negotiating with your spouse or negotiating with your children or negotiating with the people you work with. It, it, not with those words, but you're trying to get, get them to see your point of view. You're trying to make compromises. This is what life is about, yet we don't learn that in school in any way. That's why I made that remark about my father teaching me negotiation. Uh, and and there, the, the general idea that, of planning, for example. We don't go through a day where we don't have to plan out some aspect of our day or, how, or our lives, how our lives should go. Who teaches us how to plan? 
these are not academic subjects. These are cognitive processes that we pra we learn and practice from from birth. But when, when you talk about teaching and mentoring and parenting, you're talking about how to help a kid plan. Why was my daughter talking to me today about what, what she wanted to do in the future? Because I'm her planning teacher, always have been. So when she has a plan, she wants to run it by me, see what I think. That doesn't mean she's going to listen to me. It just means the idea that you express your thoughts and you have them criticized and you can figure out some new idea. This is the essence of how we behave as adults. And yet, we have a child sit still for a long period of time and force them to learn answers to things. Doesn't make sense to me. So tell us how you relate intelligence to these cognitive processes. What do you mean exactly by relate intelligence? Well, I think that in the book you you sort of push back on a traditional measures of intelligence, and you identify intelligence actually with these cognitive processes. Well, and in fact, that's that's this is this is what we really mean by when we say somebody's intelligent. Again, as a professor, okay, what, professors judge people's intelligence all the time. How what happens? A student comes into your office, you talk to them for 20 minutes, and you come back to that kid's stupid. That kid's really bright. I want that one as a PhD student. This guy is going to be, is brilliant. How do you make that assessment? And we do it all the time. How do we make that assessment of, of, of by we, I mean all people? We meet somebody, we think, boy, that guy is, wow. We're not giving him a multiple test, that's for sure. And we're not asking him to compare blips on the screen or whatever it is, you know, the silly things that are not key tests. What we're doing is we're judging, first off, his ability to express himself, second off, the originality of ideas, third off, to be able to read how to follow an argument, to counter an argument. These are the things that we, really mean when we talk about intelligence. And everyone, that's a, it's a common use of the term, he's smart, he, she's smart, that's what we mean. And then we get into school and we're sitting there giving a number based upon whether or not you know you could, you could manipulate shapes in the right way for little kids, um, or, 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 or analogical reasoning for bigger kids, or none of which is really definable in that way. And, and, and my classic example is when I used to do graduate admissions when I was at Yale, um, I, I had many a kid who had 800s on his GREs and all A's, so I almost automatically rejected. And people used to say to me, well, why would you automatically reject someone like that? I said, because this is a person who has learned very well how to play the game and follow the rules, probably has an original thought. And sometimes people would call me on the carpet and say, well, you really ought to check it out. I said, fine, let's fly 10 of them in and interview them. And we would, and they always came by as very dull, tell me what answers you want me to say to you, and I'll say them to you kinds of people. And the kids who were the original ones that we wanted to put into PhD programs often had quirky backgrounds, and they were good at X and bad at Y, and they had, but they came in with an idea, and they were excited about the idea. And that's how we judge intelligence. It always is how we, we judge intelligence. So I, when you so there are 12 of these cognitive processes described in the book. And, and yeah. you mentioned three specifically, but you lay them all out, and there's a lot of detail. It's well worth reading. Um, I was really interested in the planning piece because it's really hard to see how you could learn planning without actually doing it over and over and over again, right? It, you really have to be able to do it. Have to be able to do it. Have to be able to do it. And do it constantly. And, and so, there, you know, there's a simple issue how to get from place point A to point B, or how to plan out a meal. Um, you know, cooking is a form of planning, right? Uh, we plan on a way of getting dressed is a form of planning. We have a lot of very everyday activities we do with planning, and we are in fact taught them by our parents. Our parents teach us how to how to plan out a wardrobe or how to how to how to eat or those kinds of things. And so some plans are what I always call scripts, which are things that we do automatically because we've done this so many times. 
the real issue in planning is, well, what do I do now? I'm confused by now. And one of the big planning problems that kids have is what what they should go to school or not, what school should, what subjects should they study or what jobs they want. And we don't even give them enough information to make intelligent plans. We don't let them know about the kinds of things there are to do out there in the world. We don't we don't help them think that out. So I mean the real issue for teaching planning is to really get down to understanding what somebody is wanting to do and helping them get to do it. So I didn't for example back to my son, I didn't have a plan for him in any way. All I had to do was I said, you're going to have to plan this out. Now, I have no idea. I don't know about transportation. You have to plan it out. What I can do is to teach you how to plan in general, how to make a decision in general. And that could have been about anything. It could have been about baseball, which frequently was. Um, but the issue of coming up with your own conclusions faced with the evidence has a lot to do with what planning is really about. So uh, Rhonda mentions in the chat uh, that we seem to get caught in measuring. You make the point several places in the book that oftentimes you think something gets taught or or there's an expectation in a school because it's easy to measure. Is that fair? Yes. Yes, that's very fair. That's why mathematics has such a big role in the uh, in the in, in well, we talk so much about mathematics. You know, where are we? I mean, mathematics. The country is not as good as some other country in mathematics. Really, was there some math competition that I missed? I mean, how does that matter? Why do we think it matters? And we get caught up in, you know, well, math is very important for it, and then we make, now it sounds like a religious argument. If you can't do algebra, then well, we don't know what to say because it makes no sense. Because your average adult doesn't ever do algebra. They never look at algebra. Yet we're sitting there teaching them algebra, and there's only one reason for it. It's very easy to test. We can tell if you did well at it or you didn't do well at it. We know the right answer. In algebra and math in general, there are right answers. In real life, not so much. There isn't a right plan for you, okay? There isn't a right plan for the country. I mean, we make, the, the country makes decisions, you know, to invade Iraq. Is it right? Is it wrong? I don't know. It's complicated, okay? But in, in trying to understand those kinds of things, you can't put that on the test. So you can say, well, we can always put the quadratic equation on the test. The problem with the quadratic equation is that no one ever uses it. <laughs> and I'm just astonished by the idea that we keep drilling it into people's heads. What for? And whenever I give any speech anywhere, one of the first things I say ask is how many people in the room know the quadratic equation. And on average, one out of 500 raises their hand and says they do. And I ask them what it is, and they tell me something else, like the Pythagorean term. But every single person in the world has learned it. Every single person in the world has learned it. Why? Because it's very easy to test. That's why. It's the only possible reason. There, there are so many dog years to my copy of your book that it's unfair to pull one section out and say it was a favorite. But it was, uh, I did make a significantly larger note on your section on the mistakes not to make in teaching, in part because I felt like they're a really good way to introduce the fuller topic. But, but clearly, there are things that we do that really um, aren't helpful to students. Are there any that you would want to call out that you haven't talked about so far? Well, you know, there's a lot of mistakes you make in teaching, but one of the things that you, a teacher can make a mistake that a teacher can make is setting themselves up as an authority, that, that they actually know the right answer and you don't, and I think you've got to learn it from me. Uh, I think that ultimately this is why I call my company Socratic Arts, because ultimately the Socratic method is the only way to actually teach, in my opinion, which is not to be able to tell anybody anything, not to be think, saying, I know you don't know, because you may not, that may be right. It, it, it may not even be close to right. 
Um, the real issue is the dialogue. The real issue is getting um, getting the, the, the students involved in the dialogue, to care about the dialogue. And, and so, so they're learning multiple things at the same time. They're learning, they're learning how to, how to uh, reason, reason from whatever is going on. They're learning how to express themselves. They're learning how to, um, how to negotiate. There are all these things can go on. The, the conversation is everything. And so what I think happens with teachers is that teachers get themselves caught up in the idea that they know and you don't. And it's just wrong. In fact, I have a story about that. I remember at Yale, there was a, some uh, psychology professor who gave a, 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 a lecture to the other professors and said, here's the funniest question I was ever asked by the member of the general public. I was asked, what happens when the, when the student asks the question and you don't know the answer? And the entire audience cracked up. And the reason why the entire audience cracked up is that the model we have of teaching is that the teacher knows the answer, the students have questions or they need to be told the answer. When professors are actually thinking, it hardly ever matters if I know the answer. I don't know everything in the world. That's not the point. The point is that we should, if you ask me a hard question, my answer back is, what do you think? <laughs> really, I mean, you ask me a tough question, what's your answer? Who else has an answer? I don't have to give the answer. I'm not an answer supplier. So I want to quickly move to your sort of your uh, what do we do section. Uh, we are going to shift the Q&A in about five minutes. Uh, so if you've got a question for Roger, please uh, feel free to have it prepared. Uh, like Steve, your question there. If you wouldn't mind, well, I'll have you put it back in when we get to that moment. Uh, you, I will also be able to give you the microphone if you'd like to, uh, to actually say your question out loud. So you've talked a little bit about this idea of uh, building online curricula. And the question that I had was, uh, why does that need to be created formally? And, and, and you discussed the difficulties of the funding. Um, and why does it need to be funding? Couldn't that be done in a Wikipedia sort of way? No, because it's phenomenally complicated. I have built um, numerous master's degrees online learned by doing master's degrees. They cost on average about $2 million a piece to build. And the reason for that is that you have an entire team of people making sure you've anticipated everything that so you're trying to say. You're always saying to somebody, okay, now you're in this situation. I want you to perform this. I want you to deliver this. I talked earlier about business plans. Let's imagine that. Okay, so here's the situation. Write me a business plan in a week. You have a bunch of team, teammates to work with. Build, write the plan. You don't have to write a business plan. So I need to help you through it. So it's a kind of guidance, guidance through, which is either in the website or from the mentor or from the other students. And there's, you, you can't just so it's, say, throw them in and say, you figure it out. So what you want to do is set up really interesting situations which are very well thought out so that kids don't flounder, but that they, they can get excited with ideas and answers and, 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 and produce things. And so in the producing of things, they, they understand, they now know how to do it, not because the teacher said that, but because they produce something. So in terms of in order building that kind of stuff, and I'm building right now the cheapest version I ever built. I used to build it with very elaborate simulations and very elaborate uh, videos, which because I have more money. Uh, these days, the money situation is different. So you can sell. It costs $2 million for an entire full year master's degree. So if I, anything I want to build is going to, be, uh, is going to be expensive. And I went to set with the Boeing Corporation to build a full year curriculum in aerospace engineering for high school kids. It would be $2 million. How many of those should we have? 100? 1,000? You know, aerospace engineering is one of a million topics I can think of. We should be having all those options. This will not get done by people just building them. They're not going to necessarily know how. And the real issue is getting some serious money to start building, this is what I spend a lot of my time doing, to start building these in enough ways. But there's a second issue too, which is, of course, 
if you're interested in infiltrating a high school system, you have to actually somehow they have to be able to take them. Like right at this moment, I have already built a, a, a full four-year high school in computer science. Not that I think that's the only subject in the world, it's just when we know real well. And you think I can get anyone to take it with all the common core standards and all the and all the tests that have to be passed? And, and you didn't teach you know chemistry, you didn't teach literature. Yeah, I'm teaching computer science. And some kids should have the option to say, I want to do that. And that's what I'd like to do. Instead, the kid is excited by computer science. He has to ignore his other classes and get, you know, and get to a fair amount of difficulty. And then he can't find a good computer science teacher. And I'm just saying that's one of many subjects. Anything that you're interested in doing in this world, an entrepreneurship, well, I want to run a business. Okay, why don't we let the kids in high school learn to do that then? Because I have to take literature. Nonsense. So to me, it's not going to get built automatically. It's not. It's going to get built by somebody who sits there and says, I care about this. The problem is the people who can afford to do that, the Bill Gates of the world, are exactly on the opposite side of the, of the, of the, of the story. They, they want to do more testing and more teacher evaluation, which is another word for testing. Uh, it's all about testing. And they, they, what they want to do is set more tests. So you have serious moneyed interest in this country right now on the very opposite side of what I'm proposing. Who are very concerned with making sure that we sell more tests and press preps and textbooks, and we know who those guys are. And what I'm saying is that they'll try hard to stop it, to stop you even getting it into the schools. So that doesn't make it a real good business proposition. And it is expensive to build, and it does require expertise to build. So I want to push back gently, because part of what I heard in the book was the, you know, the original model of apprenticeship. And I'm also hearing the degree, in which, the degree to which there are now going to be an incredible variety of kinds of career options or things to learn how to do from people who do an enormous variety of things around the world. Wouldn't that argue for a system of mentoring that's much more kind of grassroots oriented? Well, I'm all for, I'm all for that if it could happen. I mean, it, it, I'd be the last one to oppose it. <laughs> I am a great believer in apprenticeship, and I'd love for it to be grassroots-oriented. I'm you know, faced with two things. First off, I know how to build online curriculum, so I'm using my expertise. And the second is I think someone has to set up the alternative for the people who are entrapped in the existing uh, school system. And so some, that requires a lot of building and engineering. I'm all for somebody doing this on their own or doing this in, 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 in their own community and all those things are great. How could I possibly be against them? But what, what I mean, my model is always the same. Okay, you know, learn by doing is an idea in the right a long time. You know, certainly since later, um, and probably before that. And you have John Dewey saying, "Let's build a learn by doing school," and he built one in Chicago. Okay, and today that Chicago, that's very school is still around, but it's one of the elite prep schools in Chicago. So the problem is that John Dewey didn't have a computer. Because he didn't have a computer, he couldn't build what he wanted to build and get it out to everybody across the world. He could only get it out in Chicago, where it couldn't sustain itself without John Dewey himself. And what I don't want to do is be known for somebody who's built a few good learn-by-doing learn by curricula. I, I don't care if I'm known at all, frankly. What I want to do is overthrow the existing system that isn't obvious. And I think the way to do that is by, give, is by putting these on a machine and allowing everyone everywhere in the world to have it. So just uh, two hours ago, I got a phone call from somebody who said, China has just decided to, to offer our short courses in computer science and business, which we've just been created. And I just came back from Saudi Arabia, where they've agreed to offer them. Getting them offered in this country is still harder, but I have a bunch of people signing up. My point is, we can just get them out. 
get more and more built and more and more opportunity for people to educate, get themselves educated about things they want to know how to do. Okay, we're uh, we're in the Q&A right now, so if you've got a question for Roger, please uh, post it in the chat. And if you've posted it before and it's flown by, I apologize, you're just going to have to put it in again. Or you can raise your hand, which is the third icon over in the participant window, and I'll give you the microphone. So uh, Ruth wants to know, is there not a benefit for a student to be told they need to explore an area, math, science, literature, so that they can then be excited by new ideas? Isn't that what current education does? No, that's what current education pretends to do. In, 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 in universities, there's all, remember, universities are the bad guys. They've set out the requirements. So when they say you must learn algebra in order to go to our university, they don't mean that at all. Uh, in fact, uh, the aerospace, when I did this aerospace design curriculum with Boeing, it, it, exactly, I have a story about exactly that, which is that I got the idea that we're going to invite an aerospace engineering professor. Remember, I think professors are the bad guys. And sure enough, they did. And the first thing he said is, well, I hope in this curriculum we're going to teach lots of math and science. And I said, why? Is it necessary? And he said, yes. But his reason why was because he didn't want to have to teach it. He says, kids show up at the University of Washington, which is where he was from, he says, and they don't know enough math and science. Translation meaning he would have to teach it. I said, so you want to teach every kid in the world math and science just in case they happen to show up at an aerospace engineering curriculum at the uh, University of Washington. And then I said to the uh, people at the Royal Aerospace Engineers, I said, when we finish designing this curriculum, really try to get math and science in there, will you? <laughs> because I know we're going to get beat up if we don't. You know the only math they can figure out how to get in there? Statistics. The only math that's not taught in high school. So this idea, that's just a religious idea. You must know these things in order to, you don't. And in college, college professors never assume you actually learned in high school anyway. If that's the word in college. You always have to reteach it. You have to make the assumption that the kids didn't really learn it right anyway. So if this idea of preparing people for college or preparing people, they'll need it for later. There's no evidence of that. I'm a scientist. I believe in reading for evidence. Show me one piece of evidence where algebra prepares you for anything other than more algebra. Okay, so we're being bombarded by questions. Um, <laughs> yes, I know. Tom I wants to know. I know. I, would, I probably no surprise to you. Uh, can student-centric education and social learning work together? It seems to go against the Socratic approach. Well, I don't know why they can't go together. I mean, the fact of the matter is that social learning, whether how you define it, but it seems to me social learning is about kids learning how to get along with each other and communicate with each other in reasonable ways. And I don't have any problem with that in terms of what I'm talking about because I actually never believe in online learning being just one person sitting there at a computer. I want the kids to work in teams. When we first rolled this out at Carnegie Mellon, we actually employed a full-time psychologist because the kids would get into fights in their team. And I thought, well, great, so they should learn how to adjudicate disputes. That's, that's not unreasonable, even if they're computer science because they'll still have to learn how to get along with other kids. Computer science are especially bad at it. And so the idea that, that you're paying attention to what the student is doing while he's getting along with other, working with other kids, I think is critical. I don't think it's random. I think you have to do that. As soon as a kid wants to do something, put them together with a group of other kids who want to do the same thing, have them do it together as part of my point. So uh, I don't know this user's state. C. Tonius asks, you seem to have done well by your conventional education. How do you justify a radical revolution of education founded within your own conventional education experience? Well, I didn't do well. I did, I did terribly. 
had barely graduated college. In fact, if they had my grade point average, they would have not graduated. I graduated number 322 out of 678 in high school. Notice how I remember that? Um, I, I never really went to class. Um, I managed to get by without paying attention, but, but the one thing I did consistently, which is what I think everyone has to do in this society, is I made sure to get the letters after my name by whatever method I had to do that. Um, and, and my education didn't do anything for me in terms of where I got. As, as a professor of, uh, of computer science, I might point out, I have no degrees in computer science. Right? I'm also a professor of psychology. I have no degrees in psychology. I barely took courses in these subjects. If, if anything, I actually was a math major in college. It's a subject which I, you see my point of view on. Um, so the, the the issue of, of of my education getting me somewhere? No, no. My my drive got me somewhere. My ability. I mentioned my father, somebody who was my Socratic teacher, got me somewhere. Um, my ability to be in the right place. I got lucky when I went to Carnegie, now Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Tech. I got lucky to be in a place that was doing AI, so I learned AI from the other kids. I think that became my specialty. But no, I was a terrible student. And still would be if you brought me to class. Katie wants to know how, how or can this same theory be applied to elementary and younger learners? Well, you can look at something called the Alternative Learning Place. It's a website that belongs to me, alternativelearningplace.com, um, where I have built a first grade engineering curriculum. And the idea is all day, every day, all kids do is build stuff. And uh, they build bridges, they 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 they, build, they smash trucks, they build rocket ships, and I argue you they can learn to, to read and write and, and and reason and get along and, and all the other things that might matter, basic math, within the context of something they might want to do. And my argument is the only kids who take this curriculum are kids who want to do it. You ask them, would you like to play with trucks? Yes, good, go into this curriculum. You don't go into another one. And I think we should be building, you know, fifty first grade, offering each kid the opportunity to do what they want to do. And I believe you can do that just as much in elementary school as anywhere else. In fact, I actually think it's easier in elementary school. Given the option, I would be able to, I'd be more willing to do that because high school is a real problem with respect to the rigidity and the standards. It's less true in elementary school, especially around the world. Now, my, my focus is bigger than this country. Um, and around the world, you find much less rigidity in elementary school. They haven't got the tested every grade thing yet going on right now. So there's lots of, I, when I was in Pakistan and on some school board in Pakistan, and they said, what, kind of, what should we build for third grade? And I said, how about the cultural ambassador curriculum? Your job will be to explain Pakistan to a bunch of kids in Kansas by interviewing people, by making movies, by writing a history. And the kids in Kansas will be the judge of whether they understand what you're talking about. And the kids in Kansas will have to produce the same history back to be understood by the people in Pakistan. I think that's a good way to learn about yourself, about who you are, and how to present yourself. And, and the world is pretty radically different places. Um, yeah, that's my idea of a curriculum. I'm sure you get this question all the time. It's going to have to be our last question. There are several left on the table, and I apologize for that. But Kathy says, isn't algebra a way of thinking and problem solving that can be generalized to life? No, that's a religion. That's a religious remark. Okay? That is always the religious remark. But let me just ask you personally, have you ever met a mathematician? And are they better reasoners about life than other people you've met? Because if the answer is no, then the argument is just wrong. And, and I can assure you, as somebody's lived my life in the academic world, the mathematicians are not only not better reasoners than all the other people in the academic world, they may even be worse. So the idea that algebra teaches you some other reasoning is just the fiction we use to justify it. And people have said that mantra for I don't know however, however long. It's a piece of religiosity that is in our culture, but the glories of algebra. 
it's not necessarily been in every other culture. <laughs> it's only this culture, and this culture believes in algebra because of testing. That's why we've had testing a really long time. By the way, we're Roger, going more around. Do you know why we have algebra yes. in the curriculum? Go ahead. Yes, please. Okay, one more remark. The reason why we have algebra in our curriculum is actually an interesting story. When the curriculum was designed by President Harvard in 1892, in case you don't know that, look it up, he got the chairman of the Princeton Math Department to decide what we should be learning about math, and the chairman of the Princeton Math Department was selling an algebra textbook at the time, and that's why algebra is required, because he required it. Yeah. <laughs> Roger, as a courtesy we do to our guests, we do always finish on time. I really want to thank you for coming on. I appreciate your coming back on the show, doing it over the cell phone. Uh, that was fascinating. The book is Teaching Minds by Roger Shank. Thanks, Roger. Thank you. Don't miss Richie Norton on Monday, The Power of Starting Something Stupid, uh, Richard Millington on Social Community Management and Virtual Book Clubs on Tuesday, and Chris Mercoliano on The Defense of Childhood um, on Thursday. Thanks, everybody. Uh, I'm sure you can put questions in the uh, Mighty Belt space or you can put them on my blog and we'll try and forward them to Roger. The book is fascinating, well worth the read. I'll take us back to that page. Teaching Minds, How Cognitive Science Can Save Our Schools. Take care, everybody. Have a great night or day, depending on where you are. <laughs>